Please then turn, if you will, to the reading of our text this morning, which is Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, as we will continue on in chapter 2, looking at verses 14 through 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And please hear with me then the reading of God's Word. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Now we can all probably remember watching a a TV show or a movie where to give you a, a better understanding about what's going on in that current scene, they take you back to where it all began, you know, one year ago, two years ago. So if a character is in this pickle, if he's in this jam, they take you back to the beginning to show you kind of what caused him to to be in that position. And this is similar to what the Apostle Paul is doing here today. right? He takes us back to the origin of the issue. Why this suffering, in fact, that he's talking about takes place. But before we get there, we see in verse 14 that it is really a a continuation of what Paul has just said in verse 13 as we covered last week. Remember in verse 13, he he says that uh, these saints have accepted the Word of God. And they accepted it not as just words of men, but what it truly is. God's Word. And Paul says, this Word is working in you believers. And you want to know how it's working in you believers? Well, he says in verse 14, It was working in them to enable them to imitate the churches of Christ in Judea so that they would persevere through suffering. They would persevere through suffering. So Paul says that this internal reality that they embraced in receiving the gospel proclamation is evident to all now in its its outward manifestation and in their outward faithfulness to Christ in the midst of this suffering. They suffered for Christ's sake and they did not forsake His name. And yet we have to ask, well, why was all this suffering for? Right? Well, what was it for? Why were they willing to suffer this persecution? And they were willing to suffer persecution for something that in today's society we no longer value very highly. And that is truth. They were willing to suffer for truth. They were willing to be persecuted for truth. You see, the world does not value truth They prefer the lie. But as Christians, we are called to love the truth, aren't we? Because who is the truth? The truth is Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so so often today, people hate the truth. They devalue God's Word. right? The the, the miracle stories in the Bible, ah, those aren't true. What's said in Genesis chapter 1, that's not true. How the world is going to come to an end, that's not true. All these things they try to deconstruct and devalue. But all you do is when you devalue the Word of God is you are devaluing Christ. For what does Christ say? All that Moses and the prophets and the apostles spoke about is about me. Right? They're all speaking about Christ. 
Scriptures speak of Christ. So to devalue the Scriptures, to devalue the Word of God, to devalue truth, and to take upon the lie and to believe in falsehood is to devalue and to reject Christ Himself. And so Paul then goes on to describe what they were experiencing and who they were experiencing this persecution from. And he says that the Thessalonians were experiencing this persecution from their countrymen just as the saints in Judea were suffering at the hands of the Jews. Paul's saying, you're suffering at the hands of those that you know and they're suffering at the hands of, of the people that they know. And isn't this true? Because what is it really that Paul's getting at here? Right, what is he getting at? He's saying that you will suffer at the hands of those who are closest to you. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? Jesus Himself says that our enemies will be those within our own household. Jesus says our enemies will be those who are closest to us. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 36, He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You see, Jesus tells us, embracing the truth, rejecting the lie, and embracing the truth, embracing Christ will have this effect. It will cause division, even amongst those who are closest to you, because the word divides. It divides that which is true from that which is false. And I'm sure many, if not all of us, have experienced this. As you have received the Word, as you have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, haven't your relationships changed? If you think back to the beginning, prior to your conversion and in your conversion and today now, right? those people that you are closest to, are you still close with them today? Perhaps you had a best friend, a cousin, maybe even a brother or sister that you are really close with, but you aren't any longer. And that's because now in receiving Christ, our lives have been transformed. They are completely different. Right? Well, at one time, we were both going down the same path. Christ had took us off that path and put us on another path. Our lives are lived for totally different purposes, for totally different reasons. And this causes tension. This causes people to get angry and to not be happy with us and not to want to be around us because of some sort of unpopular belief that we might hold. Let me give you an example. Perhaps your family gets angry with you because you refuse to support maybe a, a, a cousin of yours, a male cousin who wants to be married to another man. And you say, well, I, I'm sorry, I can't support that. I, I can't go to the wedding. And now you have half your family despising you because you just won't cave in and do what they want. Right? I'm sure many of you have gone through things like this. But if you are unwilling to stand for Christ, if you are unwilling to stand for truth, if you are unwilling to stand for His Word, then what you demonstrate outwardly is that there's an internal re reality with inside you that you are not a believer, that you do not belong to Christ, that you are not like these Thessalonians, that you are not like the churches in Judea. And if you are not like them, then you likewise are not like Christ. 
For Christ is the example Paul gives to us in verse 15 for suffering for truth. He endured suffering at the hands of those who loved the lie and hated truth and put him to death because of it. And we see they, they killed Christ, Paul says, the prophets. They drove Paul out and the other disciples and they opposed all mankind. And that same thing rang, rings true today. It rings true today as we see Paul takes the Thessalonians back to show them that this suffering has always been in the church. He says, let me show you where it all began. Here is that taking them back that I spoke about in the opening. Right? The Thessalonians are dealing and suffering with this, with these trials. And Paul says, let me take you back to show you that this is nothing new. What you're experiencing is nothing new. You're not special. This is something the church has always experienced. The prophets experienced it. Christ experienced it. And we experience it. Yet I ask at the center, what, what is the problem? What is at the center of the issue? Why are so many despising the church? And so we see that the, the origin of the issue, the real issue, is Christ. Christ is at the center of the issue. Right? The, the prophets would never be experiencing suffering if it wasn't for them being the, the mouthpiece of God and proclaiming His Word in the coming of Christ. Christ would have never experienced suffering if He did not come and declare Himself the Messiah, God incarnate. The apostles would have never experienced suffering if they did not come and go, and go from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, declaring the resurrection of Christ. We would not be experiencing persecution and suffering if we just went to the wedding and didn't uphold the truth of Christ. Right? You see, Christ is at the very heart of the problem with all those who oppose Christ, who oppose the prophets, who oppose the apostles, and who oppose us. And this is what Paul is showing to the Thessalonians. And yet, brothers and sisters, that the origin of the issue goes back even farther, really. It's Genesis is found in the book of Genesis. You like that play in words? Genesis is found in the book of Genesis. Chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, what Paul is saying is really what's going on, this persecution, this suffering that, that the Thessalonians are dealing with, that you and I are dealing with, has to do with this cosmic battle that is taking place that we've seen play out in Genesis 3.15. For on one side you have Christ and all of His followers, and on the other you have all who oppose Christ. And so Genesis 3 is really the, the start of this tension, the start of this problem with Christ. But it continues to grow and to grow and to swell into something we still deal with today. It's very real to us. People don't like us simply because we are followers of Christ. People don't like us simply because we follow Christ. Yet, it's not really us that they don't like, is it? Because if we dropped Christ in an instant, we would be right back in with them, wouldn't we? They would, they would go about loving us and accepting us once again if we were just like they are. No, it is Christ they hate. He is the common denominator. He is the one that they want nothing to do with. Right? And be, As Christians, we are conformed to His image. We are like Christ. More and more we are conformed 
And so, if they don't want anything to do with Christ, what makes you think they want anything to do with us who are His image bearers, who bear the resemblance of Him more and more as we grow in sanctification? The greater you grow in sanctification, probably the more likely people are, unbelievers are not going to want to be around you. Because the, the more you are unlike them and the more you are like Christ. Now, what I do want to say about this, uh, this passage today is that this passage uh, is used as a text to try to describe Christianity and Paul as anti-Semitic. Um, this is not true. And we will unpack uh, the reason why a little later. But that is not what's going on. Yet, in fact, we do know that the Lord, uh, as Paul says here, uh, that uh, Christ was killed by his own countrymen, the Jews. Yet we do know for a fact that who killed Christ? Who killed Christ? It was the Romans. It was Pilate who put, him, who put Christ to death, wasn't it? So we have to ask ourselves, well, well if Paul's not being, anti, uh, not being an anti-Semite, what, why, why does he say that? Why is he saying that it is the Jews that killed him when we know darn well it wasn't the Jews who killed him? Well, it was as if they did. Right? That's like if a, if, a, if a wife tells her husband, take this gun and go take care of that person who's wronged me. And the husband goes and shoots the guy and kills him. The husband goes to jail, but who else goes to jail along with the husband? The wife. Right? She's the culprit. She's the one who, who instigated. She's the one who started. She's the one who told him to go do it. She's just as guilty as he is. And so that's what Paul's saying. Right? That's why you can say the Jews killed Christ because they instigated. They arrested Him. They're the ones who chanted to not free Him but to crucify Him, right? And so they are just as guilty as all the rest. And yet you see they thought that they were God's chosen people. But what does Paul say? Paul says they displeased God. They thought they had God's favor but in fact they as well as all who oppose Christ displease God because we are told without faith it is impossible to please God. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 3 that none are righteous, that none do good. Right? We are all at one time were Christ haters. Yet, those who have been made Christ through faith are enabled now to trust and obey and now we belong to Christ the second Adam. And all those who oppose Christ come from the first Adam. Right? Here are those two lines we see played out again through redemptive history. Ones that obey and please God through faith in Christ and those who displease God through rejection of Christ. Yet, we must ask ourselves, what, what solace or what consolation can we take from the fact that we suffer? Right? That we suffer. Well, how about that we suffer and are persecuted with the rest of the church? We suffer and are persecuted with the rest of the church. We should take comfort in the fact that we stand in a long line of saints who have likewise experienced the Word, have accepted and embraced Christ, and have been uh, emboldened to stand up to any and all hardship for the sake of Christ. Right? That should comfort us. That we're not alone. There are so many others like us in the past who have done it. Right? There are so many that we can look to as an example to see their walk and to imitate it. And yet also, in our weakness and in our frailty, and in our sinfulness still, we don't want to experience suffering and persecution, do we? Say, it's alright if they experience it. But we want to get around suffering and persecution, don't we? And so as, as saints, as 
Christians, we must go to God daily and ask Him for all that we need to endure. All that we need that He might ready us for that time when persecution or suffering comes. That we would not fail. That we would not fall back. That we would not cower. Ask to be given strength to endure hostility when it comes our way. Just as we see the Thessalonians did and the saints of Judea. Also, we should be asking God to count us as worthy worshipers of God. As we see from our text, so many Jew and Gentile thought they were true worshipers. The Jews weren't trying to get the Christians to abandon Christ because they just thought it was a fun thing to do that day. No, they thought they were right. They thought they were right and they wanted them to, to, to become a Jew, to reject Christ and become a Jew. Yet, they were not true worshipers and so many today likewise profess to be true Christians, to be true followers of God, yet they do not actually know Him. They certainly have, have not been united to the Christ of the Scriptures. And so we must be careful. We must not be careless in our Christian life. We must not craft another Christ other than what the Scriptures have revealed to us, what Christ has revealed to us about Himself. But we are to devote ourselves to the Orthodox faith to devote ourselves to practicing godliness and imitating Christ. Because what does Paul say is the reward for the idolaters and the false worshipers? Paul says at the end of verse 16, but the wrath of God has come upon them. It is wrath. You see, the unbeliever has shut out God in this life. They have said no to God. They have turned their back to God. They have rejected God. And you know what results? God rejects them. He says no to them. He turns His back to them in the life to come. No one who shuts them out in this, in this life will be received in the next. As they do great damage, Paul says, to humankind. At the end of verse 15, he says, this damage is that they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Today, isn't this true? People everywhere around the world are trying to stop the spread of the gospel. Look what's going on in uh, North Korea, China, and parts of Africa, in the Middle East. Right? Christians are in hiding. They can't freely express their faith. They must worship in, in hiding somewhere, quietly. For to be found out, they would be beaten or killed. All because people hate the gospel. All because people hate the message of the gospel. All because people hate who the message is about. And men aren't happy to be Christ-haters by themselves, are they? No. They want to make everyone a Christ-hater as well. This is what's happening in our text today. Jews and Gentiles are trying to get Christians to stop believing in Christ. And so they're trying to make their life hard, difficult, through suffering, through persecution. So that, you know what? They say, I'm done with this Christian life. It's much easier to not be a Christian. And the same thing rings true today. Right? As our society turns more and more secular, less and less religious, they're putting the squeeze on Christians. Right? They want to make it hard for us. Right? They want to make us, they want to ostracize us. They want to make it so difficult for us that we throw our hands up in the air and we say, you know what? I'm done being a Christian. Or at least a true Christian. Yet, 
what these Christ haters can't comprehend and don't understand is that the Christian faith, brothers and sisters, will never be stopped. It will never be stopped. No matter how hard they try, not one of God's elect and chosen saints will be put out of the kingdom. Everyone that He has chosen will be brought to eternal life in Christ. Their works are futile. Right? And we have the very promise of God to stand on. John chapter 10, verse 27 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. What a great promise we have, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Even in the midst of suffering and trial. And no matter what someone does, God's not going to lose us. He's not going to lose His hold on us and we're not going to lose our hold on Him. It's not because of us, it's because of Him, isn't it? Right? Right? We need to be reminding ourselves constantly when trial comes that God, no one will snatch us from His hand. Right? This should help us to persevere knowing that if we have heard the Word, if God has opened our hearts to it, if we have received and embraced it, then Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not abandon us, but rather He will gird us up in His strength and never allow the attacks of the enemy to prevail. Yet, we also must be aware that these attacks will never stop. They will never cease to happen as long as the Gospel continues to be proclaimed. Here is that battle again. Truth and error. Righteousness versus unrighteousness. Now, there are some in in this country who think, well, if the U.S. just turns to Christ, all you know, things will be great. Well, this isn't going to happen. Right? All they seek to do is make the United States Old Testament Israel. Right? But God has no chosen nation any longer. Right? There will not be a golden age of Christianity in this world before the return of Christ. It will not happen. Right? Things, we are told, will only get worse. There is no longer a chosen nation. In fact, there is only now a chosen people made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? This constitutes God's people. This constitutes now true Israel, which is not a, a, a nation. It is a spiritual nation, if anything. Right? A spiritual people. And it will remain this way until our Lord returns. And this is actually then a good jumping off point to, to go back quickly to what I was saying about uh, Paul being an anti-Semite and Christianity being accused of anti-Semitism. Because this passage is, is used to charge us with that claim. But although we say that Israel is no longer God's chosen people, and all, although Paul charges them with killing Christ, what does he say in Romans chapter 11, verse 4? Quoting 1 Kings chapter 19. He says, in the Lord's response to has the Lord abandoned the Jews? And Paul says this, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, they forget Paul's a Jew himself, so he's not a, a Jew hater, because he's a Jew. But also, if Paul's an anti-Semite, why has he said that not only has God chosen Jews from the past, but He is presently saving Jews by grace now? It's just a false assertion. Paul's point is not to get you to to hate Jews, but rather his point is to get you to recognize the heinousness of sin. 
the gravity of the penalty for rejecting Christ and the gravity of the penalty for causing others to not be able to hear the word. Because remember, Paul isn't just pointing out Jews in this passage. Because he says that you suffered the same things from your countrymen that they suffered from theirs. So he's speaking of two different groups of people. And he says that they always fill up a measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them. See, these unbelieving Jew and Gentiles, like those of old, continue to reject Christ and continue, Paul says, to fill up a measure of their sins. But what does fill up a measure mean? What does fill up a measure mean? Paul uses the same phrase in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. After praying that the believers be given strength and power, that they might be grounded in love, he ends with this. And to know the love of Christ that, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Or the NIV reads, that you be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's, what he's saying is that we grow in measure. We grow incrementally. So whether that's love, whether that's strength, whether that's peace, we are growing in measure. We are growing incrementally. Little by little by little. Right? Until we're, we're filled when Christ returns. And He fills us to the very brim. Right? And so likewise, Paul saying that they are continually growing in sin. They are continually filling themselves up with sin. Heaping sin upon themselves until it is full and Christ returns to destroy the wicked. And this is what's happening in the life of every unbeliever. This is in fact what's happened in your and my life as well. Prior to coming to faith in Christ. And for this, Paul says, the wrath of God has come upon them. It's interesting, isn't it? He says the wrath of God has come upon them. He doesn't say the wrath of God will come upon you. He's speaking presently. Presently. We like to think of wrath as future all the time. Future, some future wrath that awaits. But Paul says, no, wrath is actually broken into human history now. Right? He doesn't say it's come in its full expression. That is future. That's eternal punishment. But it's broken in now. And how is it broken in? Well, for the Jewish people, it's come in God's rejection of them as a nation by which salvation was to, was to come from. Right? They were going to be that vehicle through which salvation came to the nation. But because they rejected Christ, Christ rejected them as a nation. So salvation no longer is national or ethnic. Salvation is not a respecter of persons. Right? It shows no partiality. But rather it is wherever the Spirit decides to go and to wander and to take up residence. That is Jew or Gentile alike. Another way that wrath has come upon us for all those who hate Christ is that they have now been given over to their sin. Because they choose to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so what are we told in Romans chapter 1? God has given up, given them up to the lust of their heart. He has given up them up to defile their bodies. He's blinded them. He's hardened the hearts of those who have already hardened it themselves. And so in these ways, God's wrath is already abounding here today. And so we can say that the, the wrath of God, so to speak, was inaugurated in the coming of Christ and in His rejection. Right? Yet, even for Christ-haters, there remains hope. Even for the Christ-hater, there remains hope. If God dealt with us according to what you and I deserve, we would all deserve wrath and condemnation. 
Because we are all at one point were Christ haters. And Paul was as much of a Christ hater as anyone, wasn't he? He was as much or more of a Christ hater than any of these Jews that he's speaking about. He was a persecutor of the church. He stood by and watched as Stephen was stoned to death in affirmation. He sought to imprison, imprison Christians. He sought to quiet the Christian religion and to extinguish it from this earth. Yet God chose Paul on that Damascus road. He revealed himself to Paul. He opened Paul's heart to receive the word and Paul embraced Christ. And the same is true for any person. No matter nationality, no matter the measure of your sin, how high that heap is. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for you. Christ died for Paul. Christ died for I. Christ died for Christ haters. And so you know what that means. Hope remains. For as long as Christ remains in heaven, you have opportunity to repent and to believe. Yet no one knows the day or the hour in which Christ will return. So do not tarry. Do not tarry. Do not wait. If you hear the word proclaimed, do not reject the word. Do not reject Christ. For the promises of Genesis 3 and later Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 were all made really about who? About Christ. They were made to Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. What does Paul say? For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Yet this cosmic battle wages on. This cosmic battle of Genesis 3 wages on. And Satan is still at work. And we must be aware of this. Satan is still active and working. Yet guess what? God has also given us a promise about the activity of Satan. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1-3, through 3, we read this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. You see, Satan is active still. Yet, in the coming of Christ and through his death, And through His resurrection, Satan's power has been limited. This is what we read. He no longer can deceive the nations anymore. And isn't this true? Don't we see this taking place? As the Gospel goes forth, no matter how hard people try, Christ's chosen ones are coming to faith all across the globe. The Gospel is being spread and being proclaimed all over the world. Satan cannot stop that. He cannot hinder that. God's will and purposes will be accomplished. And it will be accomplished in the church. And so let us have boldness and courage, not turning away from suffering for Christ's sake. Because even if our bodies are destroyed, they cannot touch our souls. And if we are Christ, then we also know that we have already been vindicated. We have already been vindicated. Right? When we stand before the Lord, right, we will be declared righteous according to what Christ has done. 
As Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one. No one can bring a charge against God's elect, for it is God who is the justifier of men. It is Christ who stands at the right hand of the Father and who intercedes for us each and every day. It is Christ who loves us. So no matter what it is that we experience on this earth, whether death or life or angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything, then all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in hearing that, what should our response be? What should our response be to that? How about to love the one who first loved us? To love the one who first loved us. To obey His Word. To be willing to suffer on account of His name. This is what Paul praises the saints in Thessalonica for. He thanks God that God chose them, that God called them, that He opened their hearts to receive the Word. And He sees it working in their lives. For although they were dealing with suffering, they stand in a long line of sufferers. They are standing with the church at large. And brothers and sisters, we too, we stand with the church at large. We stand with the church at large. So can this be said of us? Are we imitators of those godly men and women who suffered for Christ's sake? That's my hope. That that can be said here at Covenant Baptist Church. That we are imitators of Christ. That we are imitators of Paul. That we are imitators of all the churches of Christ. For as this cosmic battle continues to wage on, that we realize Christ has already won the battle. Christ has already triumphed over Satan. So let us, by the power of God, continue then to give proof that God's Word is alive in us by pleasing God in all of our ways, by being those who proclaim God's Word, by being those who do not hinder His Word from going forth, but rather allowing it to be proclaimed to all peoples and all nations. For we know its power because we've experienced this power of God. For we have been transformed at one time being Christ-haters to being lovers and friends of Christ and His glory. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son who is true, for Your Word that is true. Father, we ask that You would grant to us a desire uh, to abandon all falsehood and to cling to truth. We ask, Father, for strength that we might abide in the midst of suffering. We likewise ask, Father, that You would grant to us joy in suffering, that we would know that we are suffering on account of Christ our Savior, for He suffered, and we are no greater than our Master. And so we too should look forward to suffering when it comes our way. Yet, Father, we also ask that uh, uh, for the conversion of our neighbors. We ask for the conversion of our unchurched family and friends, for we see in reading the Scriptures today, Lord, that they are building up and filling up the measure of their sin. Yet, Father, You have called all to repent, all to come to saving faith. And so, Father, we pray that You would use this Word, that You would use the the Word, the Gospel that goes forth today to convert these sinners, that they might escape the wrath of God and that they might receive that free mercy which comes through Christ our Savior. And so, Father, we come before You all this, asking all these things that You might 
Grant to us greater wisdom and understanding and knowledge of Your Word that You might open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is You have taught us this morning that we might go forth and live it out this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.